Okay, so now we're going to get into the chapter, Working with Others, which begins on page 89. And I'm going to cherry pick this. And I, we saw people, we just had people stand up who um, have been through the, the steps. So for those of you who have not been through the steps, I want you to look at this chapter a little differently. Look at, look at what, they're going to be telling us what to look for in a sponsee. Think about it. Are you sponsorable? Are you open to the process that we're going to discuss today? That's what you should be looking at, okay? So I like to step back once again. We're going to look at my old prejudices. I don't like to use the word sponsor anymore because there's so many prejudices. I like to say I work with people, working with others. So I want you to expand that. I think of it as every interaction I have with the still suffering, um, I am working with people. One of the biggest complaints I get in Overeaters Anonymous is nobody returns my phone calls. I don't know how your area is, but it's my biggest complaint I get. So I have to ask myself, am I returning phone calls in a timely basis? Am I coming into a meeting five minutes late and leaving five minutes early? Am I, after a meeting, going to the friends and my, my crew, and there's a newcomer sitting in the corner that's dying? So I have to ask myself, what talents do you have? For example, Mary and Glow use their talents to, to bring me here. That's working with people. Maybe you're, maybe you're a good organizer and you can help out in a group. So whatever you do, God's going to use your talents to work with other people. But I want to expand it to the idea it's beyond the one-on-one -on -one sponsoring. Okay? And once again, I thought that sponsoring was a diet coach and a um, life coach. And what I have to say, my experience was I was very ineffective at both. When I realized that working with others was simply carrying this message, it blew my mind how helpful I could be to people. Because let me tell you, the people that, that I work with who I think are going to be stars, crash and burn. And the people I think they're never going to get it, they sail through the steps. So I have no idea. So my responsibility as a recovered person is to be consistent in the message I'm carrying because I don't know when someone's ears are open. So once again, on the receiving end, I don't know how much of it was that the, there wasn't a consistent message being given in my area or how much I was dismissing what I was hearing. So if I have a really bad day, if I'm still preoccupied that my iPhone doesn't work, I can't be helpful to you guys. So my job is how can I be most useful to people? So let's go to page 89 and let's see what the book tells us about working with others. It says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. And uh, like I told you, I love podcasts, so I had listen to some podcasts of this guy, and he's not a member of AA. He's actually was getting his doctorate thesis in history in the early 70s when Bill was still alive and decided to do his doctoral historical thesis on AA. So it was very interesting to hear his perspective of AA from a non-alcoholic. And one of the things he talked about was that he thinks that AA worships the first 100 too much. And I don't know about you guys, but the first 100, the first 100. And he says that not enough credit is given to the ones that didn't make it. The ones that did you know, that, that a lot of these shoulds and never are because they learn from people dying. So when I read that first sentence, what I read now is practical experience shows that nothing will ensure us drinking more than not working with others. So if I want to keep this, and I want immunity, that I'm going to have to intensively work with others, which means it's going to be inconvenient. If I'm not being inconvenienced by carrying this message, I'm not doing enough. A friend of mine says she's divinely inconvenienced on a daily basis. So the next paragraph, here are our 12-step promises. Life will take on new meaning, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other are the bright spots of our lives. And I love how it says new meaning, because my whole life had a lot of meaning, but I needed a new meaning. My, meaning, my life was not meaningful, let's put it that way. And um, so these, this is what I, and, and really to see 
to see other my, the people, like for, I'll just give you an example. When I was in Relapse before I went into the big book, me and my sponsor, brilliant women that we are, we decided you could stay abstinent if you change your abstinence. So we decided we weren't allergic to flour. It was just white flour. Because the color of the flour makes it different. So I put on 50 pounds and she put on 100 pounds. And I got this message and I wanted her to get better so bad. And I would occasionally call her and she was weighing and measuring her M&Ms. And uh, she couldn't hear from me. I was her sponsor, her sponsee for eight years. And all I did was just say, God, please help her. And what happened was I worked with someone who worked with someone who worked with her. And now she's recovered. And it's not saying, oh, look at Kim. It's saying, see how when Kim stayed out of it, something happened. That all we have to do is help the person in front of us, and we don't know what, who, who else is going to be touched by that. I love that. Absolutely love that. So the next couple pages, like I said, I'm going to cherry pick, because you have to remember, back when this book was written, there really wasn't a fellowship. So they had to go into hospitals and ministers and try to find these alcoholics. I don't suggest you go into McDonald's and look for a fat person. <laughs> we have enough people suffering in the rooms. And this is, once again, my opinion, but I feel very strongly about this. We spend a lot of time focusing on the newcomer and trying to get people in here, and we ignore the people who are currently here suffering. I rarely meet a newcomer. What I meet is people like me dragging their butt in here one more time and getting sicker and sicker. So for me personally, I say stay in the rooms, help the next suffering compulsive overeater. So I'm going to talk about this in a general way, even though they're going to be talking about ministers and approaching families and stuff. So that last paragraph, it says, perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. That's a big sentence to me. Because I'm acquainted with a lot of compulsive overeaters. I'm not acquainted with a lot that want to recover. When I'm acquainted with people who like to be in the room and complain about their husbands and their dead cat. And they just want to throw up on everyone so they can feel better just one more day. And they want to feel comfortable in a room where people eat like them as they continue to eat themselves to death. So what I'm looking for is not only the compulsive overeater, but who wants to recover? Who wants to get better? And those are the people that I'm, 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 you know, I, I reach out my hand to. On the top of page 90, that first paragraph, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. So this is letting me know, and this is hard, if someone doesn't want to stop eating, I'm supposed to leave them alone. And it's hard because I know what it's like to be in the food. But I also know that nobody was going to get, make me stop eating until I was ready. So if I start forcing myself on people, I'm going to piss them off if they're not going to want to ask me for help, which is why I kept away from my old sponsor. I knew if I harassed her, she was just not going to come around anymore. So I'm trying to find all I can about them. So when I approach somebody, I'll often ask, well, how long you've been in OA? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Because once again, my experience is, is someone who's been around a long time has a lot of prejudices like I did. So I have to find that out. Find out their religious leanings. You know, are they coming from an overly religious background? Are they coming from an atheistic background, agnostic background? A big thing I see, a lot of people coming from AA and other 12-step programs, what prejudices do they have with that? Once again, as I introduce myself, I'm very lucky. I've been obese, I've been underweight, and I've been bulimic. So someone who's come from an obese background, I'm not going to tell them about my, my, my pain about being underweight and losing my period. You know, if someone is, is anorexic, I'm not going to tell them about my obesity stories. I'm going to cater that to where they can identify in. Okay, so I'm trying to have a general conversation with somebody. The sec third paragraph down, sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it's better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of a spree or at least a lucid interval. 
Then let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good. Once again, are you done? And if he would go to any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who is recovered. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who as part of his own recovery try to help others and would be glad to talk to him if he cares. So I love my home group because my home group is on Sunday mornings because people were binging Saturday night. You know, that's the cool thing. They're coming off a run. They're desperate. That's when, I, that's when we can really get to them. You know, I often hear people say, well, nope, I'm not working with you until you're two weeks abstinent. I can get two weeks. I don't need you at that point. I need you when the day before I'm binging my brains out and I'm willing to do anything. And when it says any extreme to do so, anyone who's been to any more than two 12-step meetings is going to say yes until you ask them to do something specifically. <laughs> so what you want to do is get quiet with your God, with your higher power, and ask how you can most efficiently carry this message. So for example, are you a morning person, an evening person, an afternoon person? When would be a good time for you to receive phone calls? Because you're supposed to be 100% available. Maybe you feel like you're not good on the phone. Maybe you feel like you have to do face-to-face -face interactions. How do you want to handle the tools? Do you want to require them to go to meetings, make phone calls? How do you want to handle their food? Do you want it to be committed daily? Do you want it to be committed via the email, the texting? How do you, do you want to not be involved at all? So you want to give someone, and don't say any extreme, this is what I require. We can require stuff. This is what I require if you want to work with me. Are you agreeing to that? And one of the things I started doing was, because I do have them email me, is I asked them to email me a summary of what we discussed. Because when someone's coming off a run, they're foggy. So I want to make sure they understand what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then where it says here, you know, once again, we're waiting for that lucid interval, and are they done for good? Once again, are you willing to put the food down? I remember this girl. I loved it. I, worked, I did the doctor's. My, my personal thing is I always go to the doctor's opinion with people first in one session because most people, my experience is, is they're working a food plan. They don't know what their abstinence is. So I'm assuming everyone is drunk when I'm going to the doctor's opinion. We identify those foods, and I say, are you willing to put them down 100%? And this girl got quiet. And it was this time of year. And she's like, you know, maybe I'll call you back after Girl Scout season. Girl Scout cookie season's over. And I'm like, I get you, girl. Why would you ever get out to the board when the Girl Scout cookies are coming out? Yeah. I remember another girl was never heard you had to be abstinent to work the steps. She's been involved with some of the, the offshoot um, meetings in a way that say that you, you know there is no allergy and just you know if you don't trust God enough to have a piece of cake you're not ready to do the steps so she's eating her way trying to get recovered and I said no that's not what the big book says and I pointed out all the places and just that makes so much sense and we go through the doctor's opinion and I said okay now that we identified all those foods are you willing to put the food down and she said are you serious <laughs> she said I just need to be a little bit more abstinent I'm like well, when you're willing to put the food down, call me. Because I'm not going to work with someone if they're drunk. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to the steps to give them the false impression that they're going to get the results if they're still in the food. Okay, so let's look at um, page 91. Yeah. Yeah. Gives me a chance to drink. So that, that if somebody's telling you that when do you pause if you don't really believe that they're not, and they say they can control their, say if they measure out their M&Ms, you know, or they can have one dessert a day or whatever. I mean, what do you, how do you approach that? We, I go through their food and we identify what ingredients. So if they're telling me from their information that sugar is a problem for them, that means they have to put down all forms of sugar. So they can't commit M&M if they're not eating sugar. And, and, yeah, okay. So what if they say, I'm not allergic to sugar, I can eat as much as I want? It's usually by the time I'm through the doctor's opinion with them, they're not, they're not thinking they can. But if they fight me saying that the foods that we've identified are not 
they're allergic foods, I let them know that I can't work with them because from what they're telling me, they are allergic to these, these ingredients. And if they're willing to put them down, <laughs> And, I, and I, I, I tell people, if you're really unsure and you're really not sure, are you willing to put them down until we get to step 10? We get through these steps in six to eight weeks. Are you willing to put these foods down until you get to step 10? And I've never had someone get to step 10 and ask me if they can have a food back. I've had plenty of people say, no, I'm not willing to do it at all. But those people who get through the steps, they never ask about it because they're free at that point. They're absolutely free. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so page 91, the third paragraph down, it says, see your man alone if possible. At first engage in general conversation. After a while, turn his, the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits and symptoms and exercises to encourage him to speak to himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea how you ought to proceed. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking up to the time you quit. So I looked up the word in Mr. Webster's dictionary again, the word sketch, preliminary drawing, giving the essential features without details. So once again, my experience, my first OA meeting I went to, the speaker was an incest survivor. There were three newcomers. The other two newcomers had sexual abuse in their background and the entire meeting was about sexual abuse. And I left there going, I guess I don't belong because I've never, I don't have sexual abuse in my background. So it's saying you're giving them a sketch of your drinking. I think too often what we do is give them a, our life story. You know, the fact that I'm a Catholic school kid and the oldest of three and all that has nothing to do with my compulsive overeating. So what I want to do is talk to them about what we, your homework assignment. You know, the hour to the body, obsession of the mind. Not being able to put the food down. Finally getting it down. Not being able to get that out of your head. The torture of being, of being abstinent. I'm not telling him about my life story. At the bottom of, the, of that same page, when we see they know, when you when he sees you know all about his drinking, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink. We suggest you do this as was done in the chapter on alcoholism. That's the more about alcoholism chapter. If he is an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. The mental inconsistencies is that obsession of the mind. So for example, if I'm at, you know, someone notices my weight loss at work and I, someone says to me, well, Kim, how'd you lose that weight? And I'll say, well, you know, I found out that if I eat certain foods and I pick them up, I just can't stop eating them. So I decided I, I couldn't eat them anymore. Okay. Someone who's not a compulsive overeater, that's the most logical thing they heard. But someone who is a compulsive overeater might come up to me a couple days later, what do you mean you start eating something and you can't stop? So what I'm doing is leaving breadcrumbs for somebody. Because what I find is interesting is when you come in here, the last thing you're gonna do is you can't tell me I'm a compulsive overeater. And then when you try to say, you know what, maybe you're not. You can't tell me I'm not a compulsive overeater. <laughs> so what you want to do is lay out that diagnosis and see if they can identify in. And it says here next, if you are satisfied he's a real alcoholic. So we're supposed to qualify people. In January, a lot of people come into OA because it's a New Year's resolution and they don't want to pay for Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. We're not here to convince anybody they're a compulsive overeater. If I don't feel someone is a compulsive overeater, I'm friendly, but I'm not going to offer to work, for, work with them because I'm here for the real compulsive overeater. You know, a girl in my office had that bariatric sleeve surgery um, about eight, nine, I don't, know, maybe, I don't know how long, eight, nine months ago. And after she had it, I talked to her. And she's not a compulsive overeater. You know, and I, asked, I talked to her again like eight months later, and she's doing fabulous with it. She doesn't have our problem. That physical solution was enough for her. So if she came into Overeaters Anonymous, you know, she doesn't need our program. So we're, it's okay for us to qualify people. It's not okay for us to tell people to leave the rooms if, if we don't feel they're qualified. But as far as finding people to work with. So if we're satisfied, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the Maori, the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he's not too alcoholic, but insists he is severely afflicted, there will be little chance of his recovery. 
continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are right loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of an alcoholic. If his own doctor is willing to tell him he's an alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. So what I, the way that I used to give beginners meetings in OA was I would tell them about the eight tools, I'd tell them about amends, I'd tell them about inventory, I'd tell them about holding hands at the end of the meeting and saying these prayers. The way that the big book says is that you talk about problem, 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 problem. And when they ask you how you escape, then you introduce the solution. I'm coming in to lose 30 pounds and you're telling me I have to apologize to my mother? You know, we, we scare people off that way. So I'm just trying to see, do they think they have the problem? And if they think they have the problem, they're gonna ask me then I can tell them about the solution. There is a, um, saying I, have to, I had to write it down because I always get it wrong. Honesty without compassion is cruel. But compassion without honesty is deadly. And my opinion again, I think sometimes we love each other to death. Don't worry, honey. I'm going to love you till you love yourself. Don't worry about those steps. It's okay. We're killing people with that. Because they need us. If you're a compulsive overdose of this type, they need a spiritual solution. But once again, it's not cruel when we do that because we have a solution to offer them. So them feeling hopeless is a good thing. When I see someone crying and kind of like, I get excited. I get excited because they're going to be willing to take action on that misery. So the bottom of page 93, that paragraph is about the religious people. And I can't imagine... You know, you're a minister, a rabbi, a priest, a nun coming into the rooms of AA, and they say, what's, what's your problem? And they say, your relationship with God. I mean, that's crazy, and that must be so difficult to hear. But what I want to talk about is I think of someone who's been in the room a long time. I mean, my arrogance. I was your freaking interview chair. I was on the Region 7 board. Who the F are you to tell me about Overeaters Anonymous? But it's saying here, your prospects may belong to religious denominations. His religious education and training may be far superior. There are people that can quote this big book ten times better than me that are drowning in this disease. In that case, he's going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. So help them you know, check their own experience. Has knowing all the stuff that how Overeaters Anonymous works, has it kept you abstinent? <coughs> Have you been happy when you've been abstinent? It says, they may be the example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. You, know, you often hear people say, I'm living in 10, 11, and 12. I always ask them what that means. And half the time, they don't even know how to define it, let alone are doing it. So it, knowing 10, 11, and 12 is not going to give you the vital spiritual experience. Doing 10, 11, and 12 is what's going to give you that vital spiritual experience. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do. Because so, why? Because you cease fighting anything or anyone. But call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. He has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. So let's go to the top of page 94. We've now gone problem, problem, problem. We told him the solution is this relationship with the power and the 12 steps. 94, outline the program of action. Explaining how you made a self-appraisal, <coughs> steps four through seven, how you straightened out your past, step eight and nine, and why you're endeavoring to be helpful to him, step 12. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. I always thank everyone that I work with 
almost in every conversation I think them because I know I need this in order to stay sober, which is one of the reasons I don't work with people who don't want to do the steps. I can't, be, I can't afford to be a life coach for you because me not working the steps means I'm going to pick up. And once again, this is my opinion, but people who work have two sponsees, and those two sponsees are through the steps, and they just call and talk about their day or maybe do 10th and 11th step work, you're no longer carrying the message. You have to go out and get that new person. And the reason I feel so strongly about that is because we do have a very low recovery rate in OA. And if the people that are recovered are just working with people that are already through the steps, what, what are the people that, are, that need to do the steps going to do? So we have to be making sure that our hand is extended to that next suffering compulsive overeater. Um, towards the end of that paragraph, like four lines up from the end of that paragraph, it says, you may have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. That is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He may be more likely to follow your suggestions. So my job as a recovered person is to disturb somebody. It goes against my nature, people-pleasing. I don't want anyone to be upset. But my job is to disturb them because I'm not going to take action unless I'm disturbed. So once again, if you're on the other side are you, today, are you disturbed enough to take action? Because it might be tough to find a sponsor. There's not a lot of people out there that know this work. But are you disturbed enough that you're going to fight for this the way that you fought for your food? There is nothing that the food demanded of me that I didn't succumb to. So am I willing to do the same thing for my recovery? Okay, on page 95, they give us two if statements. If he's interested and if he's not interested. So the second paragraph, if he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. So once again, when I take someone on, I'm very clear what my role is. I'm your teacher. I'm not your counselor. I'm not your life coach. I'm not even the person, this is just for me again, we have to each check our own personalities. But I'm not someone you're going to call and complain about your day to. That's what your fellowship is for. That's why you need to make phone calls. That's why you need to get support around you when you're going through the steps. I'm here as your teacher. Do you want the solution of the 12 steps? If not, let me find someone who wants it. If someone continues to pick up, I hear that all the time, my sponsor fired me. And I'll say, well, what happened? Well, I couldn't get abstinent. Well, maybe that you're not getting abstinent means she couldn't work with you. Or she told me I had to make three phone calls a day and I just don't have time. Okay, so she didn't fire you. You agreed to do something and then you wouldn't do it. That's not being fired. So that's what you have to think of if you're on the other end today. Are you willing to go to any lengths? Are you willing to do things that are uncomfortable in order to get recovered? Because it's going to be uncomfortable. One of my favorite prayers is God help me to feel comfortable about feeling uncomfortable. Okay, and it says, if he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, desire must come within. So a guy I knew years ago told me, if you're working harder than your sponsor, you need to let him go. <laughs> And why am I exhausted and inefficient? Because I'm pushing or prodding. Because I want you to get this. I want, you to, I want every one of you to feel what I feel. I want every one of you to experience the freedom that I have. But I can't push or prod you. And if I do, what you're going to do is get angry at me instead of working the steps. So at the top of 96, it lets us know, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. So it is discouraging. You know, one of the things I often suggest to the girls that I work with who just start sponsoring is grab five people 
and they offered to take him to the doctor's opinion. And you're like, five people, I can never do that. I'm like, I'm gonna guess if you offer for five, you're lucky if two called. And that's what happens. My experience, again, is that many people want to sponsor, but very few want to be sponsored. So that's why I would tell people to get a bunch of people, because you're lucky if, I had one girl, and she took her like six months to get someone through the bill story, because they just kept dropping them, especially this time of the year in January. It's one of the most frustrating times, because a lot of people are coming back, but not a lot of people are willing to do the work, because the New Year's resolution is holding up at this point. February is when you get people more desperate because the resolutions are starting to fall apart by February. Um, the next paragraph says, suppose you are now making your second visit. So talk about efficient. They do all this in one visit. Now, once again, that historian, one of the things he talked about is he felt one of the reasons that AA was able to flourish was because it was during the Great Depression and a lot of these guys didn't have jobs. So they could go over in five, six hours, take someone through the first couple steps. And in fact, in the early days, you didn't go to a meeting until you reached the third step. They would go to your house, get you to concede you're an alcoholic, get you to concede you need a power, bring you to Dr. Bob's house, bring you upstairs, make your surrender, which was their step three. The guys would vote whether you did it good enough. And if you didn't, they'd make you do it again. And then they brought you to a meeting because the meeting was there for you to work the steps. Okay, so let's turn to page top of 97. First paragraph. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you are doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You may have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. I believe the reason I experienced such freedom is because I believe the foundation stone of my life is recovery. This is my purpose now, is to help other compulsive overeaters. The people I know who let go of that purpose often go back to the food. So it's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be easy. You're going to need to ask God. Because once again, that efficiency thing, like one of the things I, I found, because I get a lot of phone calls, is I had to do some meditation, and I made the you know, decision with God that I would not pick up the phone 15 minutes before a scheduled phone call. Because if I got a phone call, all I did was get on there trying to get them off the phone because I had to take a phone call. I wasn't helpful. I would just get annoyed with them right away. But I always make sure I return the phone call within a day. My, my personal thing is, and I'm single, so I don't have more time, but my personal thing is I try to return it in 48 or 72 hours. But I'm always asking God in, because if I'm picking up the phone every single time and I'm snappy with someone, that's not helpful. So I need to ask God into how I can be helpful, and I, yes, it is very inconvenient. I had a sponsee pick up when I was flying here, so I had to make some arrangements and call her and talk to her about it. It's not convenient. I'm here in San Francisco. I don't have time for that. But you know what? The foundation stone of my recovery is, is working with people. So how could I stop not call someone I'm working with because I'm talking in front of you guys. Okay. So let's go to page 98. Actually, it's the last line on page 97 that goes in 98. For the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well, little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Yet we do go to great extremes to provide each other with these things when such action is warranted. This may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. It's not the matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistant rather than upon God. And this confused me because service is such a word used for the 12th step. They're not talking about service when we think about, you know, setting up chairs and, you know, being an intergroup rep or something. What he's saying is when you start to be their God, you're on the wrong track because they become dependent on you. So little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed. It blows my mind when, when um, I had a girl this summer that called me. She was coming out of a rehab and she had done steps one, two, and three and was desperate to, just to do her fourth step. And that was honestly, once again, we grow. I would never have taken someone on a step four a few years ago. I, need, I needed to take them through steps one, two, and three. 
but I've now grown. I, I need to have a conversation with them, make sure they understand steps one, two, and three. And she also let me know her father was in hospice and she had work responsibilities. And I'm like, this girl's never going to make it. This is just, she's just too much going on. And she sailed through the steps. I don't know. I, she sailed through the steps and she's working with people now. You know, so my job is to carry the message. I'm not worried if, you know, if they're a stay-at-home mom or they have a really, you know, um, difficult career. All I can do is say, this is the work you need to do. And if they're wanting to do it, there's nothing I, if, if someone does not want recovery, there's nothing I can do to make them do it. And if they want recovery, there's nothing I can do to stop them. So all I have to do is lay out that spiritual toolkit and see who wants to come along for the ride. It's not the matter of giving what's in question, but when and how to give. So that's where I have to get in prayer and meditation as well. You know, one of the one of the little things that puts up the little, you know, like hairs in the back of my head is when I someone calls me, I said, okay, what are we working on? Oh, I'm not sure what page we're on. I'm not here to keep track of your work. You should be keeping track of your own work. If they're not even knowing what page they're on, how invested are they in their own recovery? So I'm not there. I mean, I many people I've had, well, I have to wait till after soccer season because I'm a soccer mom, or I have to wait till after the holidays because I have all my family over. I never argue. I never push or prod. Because the people who think they have to have their life in order in order to work recovery are often going to die. That's just the reality of our disease. We will put everything in the back burner that way. So continuing, it says... He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Here comes another warning. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, sponsor or no sponsor. We simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. And once again, we don't have to have a God, like a deity, but I do get nervous for people that make their God their sponsor or make their God the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous because ultimately we are human. <coughs> many, many, many of my friends who are recovered have sponsors that are no longer recovered. If their, if their recovery was based on their sponsor, they'd all be in the food now. So my job, once again, is to get someone to have a relationship with their higher power and to wean them off of me as soon as possible. Now, I tell this story a lot of vision for you because it, it just really hits me. My dad, um, in New Jersey, you learn to drive when you're 17 years old. So I, my birthday's in February, got my driver's license, and I'm working um, at a, a, a department store, and I come out, and there's a flat tire in my parents' car. So I call my dad, and he comes over, and I'm in, this is the 80s, a gunny sack dress, remember the gunny sack dresses? I'm in a gunny sack dress, and my dad, all he did was hold an umbrella above my head as I changed the tire. I was humiliated. I hate being the center of attention, and that you're just, it just was awful. And I got home, and I was so mad at him. And he looked at me when I got, told him how mad I was with this little marine face and goes, Kim, my job as a father is to become unnecessary. Um. And that's how my dad has always raised me, is that you know, he, he wanted me to be independent. And I am. That's what I want for my sponsees. My job as a sponsor is to become unnecessary. I'm doing a disservice to someone if I'm making them dependent on me. Okay. Go to page 100. This is one of my favorite promises in the book. And it also kind of reiterates what I'm just saying, is that once someone is through the steps, we are now co-fellows. We are both two recovered people walking on this path. So it says, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. Which also says to me, if I don't persist, I'm going back. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands was better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what the present circumstances. 
So this is kind of a culmination of what we talked about four through nine, that I have the ability to, be, to live happy, joyous, and free, regardless of what's going on around me. That's the freedom I get through the 12 steps. There is nothing in this world that has to happen in order for me to experience peace. That to me is one of the most biggest promises I have received through this, this program. So if we go down now to the bottom of that page, we're gonna, they're gonna talk about life after you've been through the steps, okay? So assuming we are spiritually fit, that's a big assumption, first of all. The second thing is my old prejudices. What was spiritually fit, did I think? Spiritually fit to me meant, did I call my sponsor, did I commit my food, and did I say my little prayers? That's not what it's saying. Assuming we are spiritually fit means we have gone through steps one through 12. So as assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things that alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served, we must not have it in our homes, we must shun our friends who drink, we must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes, we must not go into bars, our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses, and we mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows this is not necessarily slow. We meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. So first of all, if you are not through the steps, this does not apply to you. So protect your abstinence at all cost. Don't be going into Dunkin' Donuts to get your coffee. If you need to go to a family party, maybe you have to go for two hours and then leave, or maybe not go at all. <clears throat> we have access to recovered people. Maybe you need to make some phone calls during an event. But if we, are, if we are through these steps and I still can't handle these situations, it can't be the allergy. It's got to be something wrong with my spiritual status. To me, it's that gentle nudge from my higher power that, Kim, there's some work that needs to be done. I still have an alcoholic mind. It cannot be the body. <coughs> now, the next paragraph, to me, talks about this whole idea of what being a dry drunk is. What's going to happen if I decide to just in my opinion, again, disrespect. I mean, we don't, I, mean this, I, I forget, I think it's in our invitation to you, it says we are not a diet and calories club. And then how many of our meetings are really diets and calories clubs? I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly my area, if you come in 10 minutes late to some meetings, you wouldn't even know it's a 12-step program. You would think it's like a marriage counseling session. <laughs> you know. So it's saying here, any scheme, our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods, these attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So to me, there's this idea of, I gotta avoid people, places, and things. I gotta look out if I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You know, I can't watch um, TV shows that have, you know, um, commercials that have freedom for fast food restaurants. Um, you know, uh, the, the one that, you know, people always say, well, I always like to eat with OA people because I feel safe. I can't stand eating with OA people. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, the thing, like, they're so hard on the waiters and the waitresses, and it's like, don't put bread on my table, and it can't be on this side, and that this has to be on the side. I mean, because the fear is so there. Because I don't, I still have an alcoholic mind, and it's terrifying for me to smell something. It's terrifying for me to see something. It's terrifying for me to watch someone else eat something that I can't eat. And they may succeed for a time because I'll tell you, we have a very powerful fellowship that loves us. And they will keep us sober for a certain amount of time. But the scheme will always fail. In my experience is the, the devastation of the relapse is that much worse every single time I pick up. So then it talks about different ideas about um, you know, if we're recovered again, if we have legitimate reasons for being there, don't hesitate to go anywhere. On the top of 102, second line down, go or stay away, whichever seems best. But be sure you're on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive is going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of a situation. Do you think of... Wait, Think of what you can bring to it. 
If you are shaky, you better work with another alcoholic instead. They're telling us again, if we're feeling shaky, work with another alcoholic. The simple formula for me is, living in 10, 11, and 12, is am I having daily contact with recovered people? Because I need my thinking checked. Am I having daily contact with my higher power? Am I having daily contact with the still suffering? Which is honestly for me is why I work with a lot of people because for me personally, I found if I talk to people every day, it creates a dependence on me. So I talk to people three days a week. So that means I have to have multiple people so I'm talking to people every single day. So if I'm shaky, I mean, I had that happen with Christmas. I just, I, work was just really difficult. So I scheduled to work with somebody, just offered to take someone through the chapter on Christmas morning before my family came over, and then on Christmas evening I worked with somebody else at night so that I began my day and ended my day with working with someone so I could get out of sight myself. So the bottom of that next paragraph, four lines up, says, while you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start with withdrawal again just because your friends don't drink liquor. So what this reminds me of is when I first came into OA, I'm 27 years old, living in my parents' house in the 8 by 10 bubblegum pink room that has Holly Hobby furniture in it. And every Saturday night, I am binging, reading romance novels, and watching TV. That's what my life was. It was so tiny. I come into OA, and I am white-knuckle abstinent, trying to live on the fellowship alone. And I would spend the night on a Sunday, on a Saturday night, I had an apartment at that time, reading, watching TV, and just not binging. Because I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go out to the bar with friends because they had peanuts on the, on the counter. I couldn't, I didn't go to a restaurant for almost two years because I was terrified of going to a restaurant. I couldn't go to friends' houses that were serving food. I was scared. So what I found was I was a slave to my recovery as much as I was a slave to my disease. And when I think about, you know, they talk about this being a program of attraction rather than promotion, and I think we've watered that down again to like, okay, you're skinny. Everyone's going to want to be like you. How can we attract people to Overeaters Anonymous if we're hiding in our houses in recovery? How can we be attractive to other people if we're only hanging out with OA people? How attractive are we other people if we're abusing waiters and waitresses with our requirements because we need our food the way we want our food? Da, 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 da. Not saying we don't need our food the way, but the way that sometimes I see the way people treat people, and it's just nasty. So if we want to be a program of attraction, we need to get out in life. We gotta show that we're not a slave to the food anymore, that we can live life happy, joyous, and free, and that's what someone's gonna be attracted to. Next paragraph, your job now is to be at a place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others, so never hesitate to go anywhere you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid place on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. You know, I heard an AA guy said, little did Bill know that some of the most sordid place on earth were going to be AA meetings. <laughs> I find that too. I, some people don't want me in their meetings because I'm a big book person. You know, a guy told me in, in Texas, there are some AA meetings that won't allow the big book in it. And they charge you for a fifth step. So, the, so it's, once again, it's not just OA, it's 12-step programs. We're very lucky. I, I found this out recently. Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon, I don't know if any more, don't allow the big book in their meetings. They have their own literature and will not allow. We are so blessed that OA has made the decision that any AA-sanctioned literature is sanctioned by us as well. And my personal belief, again, because I'm a faithful person, is get recovered and then go to other OA material, then go to other AA material. That will deepen and broaden your experience. But you gotta get the experience through the steps first. So go through that big book and then you can go to the other material. Because we can, once again, confuse ourselves and distract ourselves. The AA 12 and 12 and the OA 12 and 12 do not have instructions in them. What they are are essays on people's experiences of going through the steps. There's no instructions in our OA 12 and 12. There's no instructions in the AA 12 and 12. The instructions are in the big book. Do them, and then we can broaden our experience 
because the AA 12 and 12 was written 16 years after these, you know, these, the big books, so they have a lot more experience. Our OA 12 and 12 was written in 1990, after many years' experience in OA, because we were 62, I think we started. So that can broaden our experience, but we have to get recovered first so that those experiences have depth and weight. In my opinion, in my opinion. Um, so let's go to top of 103. It says, we are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows us such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for the spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not wish burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We could not even do the same cause of temperate drinking any good. For not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by someone who hates it. So, like I said, we have many factions in OA. We have, there are 17 other separate fellowships for food besides Overeaters Anonymous. And we all fight over food plans, that's usually what it is. For me to fight that to say that my meeting is correct, for me to fight and say the big book is the only way to recover is not helpful. For me to put down Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig, for me to poo-poo on someone who had bariatric surgery is not helpful. I sponsor people in FA and See How and 90 Day. I don't, I don't care what food plan you're on. I want to know you're abstaining from your trigger foods and do you want to do the 12 steps? If you do, hop on board. So we, I think we need to be all more inclusive with that. Once again, the big book tells us you know, that we cannot transmit something we don't have. So there has to be humility about it. I can't transmit the OA 12 and 12 because it didn't work for me. But my responsibility as a recovered person is I should know people who use the OA 12 and 12 so that I can refer someone to that. If someone really wants a more strict food plan, I know, what, I know people that work more strict food plans. There's something called Big Book Awakenings, which is a much more in-depth way of working the Big Book that is all question-based. I know fellows that recovered that way, and I, if someone wants to be a little bit more slow and intense, it's my job to I can refer people to that. So that's the humility we have, yes. Not because I don't like this material that much. I can't transmit something I don't have. So if you want what I have, I can show you that. If you don't, let me help you find someone who can. I mean, for example, I don't really mess with people's food at all. And I have girls that, you know, that I work with that they have food sponsors. That's fine. If they need that more rigid, you know, rigid you know, accountability, that's great. I'll just take you through the steps. You commit your food to your food sponsor if you really need that. So I just think that's important for us as a fellowship. Let's celebrate our diversity instead of fighting with each other. Um, and the last paragraph, after all, the problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Besides, we had to stop fighting anything or anybody. We have to. And with that, I'm going to end.